Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program covering a wide variety of topics of interest to people with vision loss. I'm Nancy Goodman Torpy. And I'm Pete Torpy. Somewhere on Twitter, there's a picture of me, and I'm holding my hand way above my head, and I can't reach the push button on an audible pedestrian signal because they put it up on a pillar. So if I can't reach it, what can the poor person in a wheelchair do? It's not what I call discoverable, and discoverable is a principle of accessibility that I, I talk about a lot. You can have the greatest feature in the world that helps make the accessibility of this thing just beautiful. But if people can't discover that that feature exists, you might as well not have included it. I guess we haven't completely made the world accessible to all of us yet. But today we'll be talking about that in particular about digital accessibility. We'll be speaking with Lucy Greco, the accessibility evangelist for the University of California at Berkeley. As a blind technologist, she understands firsthand how people's lives are impacted by resources that have not been made accessible. And we'll talk with her about the current state of accessibility and an outlook for the future. But first for our tip of the week. This week's tip comes from Lucy Greco. If you want to be a professional in accessibility, don't focus strictly on one disability group. You need to inform yourself and more importantly, surround yourself with other disability groups. Go outside your comfort level and learn what everyone's needs are to be a professional in the field. And we'll talk a little bit later in the show about the concept of universal design. In other words, making technologies, products, and services that are accessible to not just one group of people, but to everybody. And that works out better for the whole world. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. Let's start by meeting Lucy and learning about the Dictation Bridge project that she's been involved in. I am Lucy Greco, and I am the Accessibility Evangelist for UC Berkeley. Now, is that a title that you made up with the word evangelist in it? Yes, they asked me early on when the project was starting what title I thought I would want. And typically the titles, the, the role I'm in is coordinator or compliance officer. And we were creating the position a little differently. Uh, it was not necessarily a coordination role. It was more a teaching, learning, which is why we chose evangelist. Well, I like it because it certainly sounds more motivated than a coordinator. And, and that's what my role is, really, is I'm there to convert people to the religion of accessibility. And you have a vested interest in that. Why, yes. For me, accessibility is very personal. I live it. I breathe it. I'm, I'm totally blind myself. I go out on the Internet and suffer on a daily basis. So I want the Internet to be more accessible. And I consider myself a screen reader expert. I never used to say I was, but I've realized over the years I am becoming one. And I know that there are people who are not experts, and I want them to be in a better situation than I am. So before we get into the main topic 
of discussing web accessibility and some of your personal experiences with web accessibility. We have talked to you in the past about a project called Dictation Bridge, which is an open source speech recognition system that works with several screen readers. Perhaps you can update our listeners about the project. Sure. So Dictation Bridge was the connection between the two major screen readers and Windows, JAWS for Windows and NVDA, to commercial dictation software, Dragon Naturally Speaking, and Windows Speech Recognition, which is free built-in speech recognition. The project did finish. We did manage to get a shipping product out onto the market. Uh, There have been downloads of the product. People are using it. Unfortunately, the development team we had was volunteers and volunteers get real jobs and move on and go off and do other things. And the environment for recognition software was changing rapidly and we were able to pay for everything we needed, but we just, we just couldn't maintain that. And frankly, the product still works today. You can still download it for NVDA. The JAWS version never worked really well. And it's, it's unfortunate, but that's what's happened with that project. It's tough to sustain projects like that. Unfortunate. It's very tough to sustain projects like this. And frankly, what my hope is, is that, you know, the developers of the products themselves will pick up the pieces. It's open source. We have no problem whatsoever, for example, say if the NVDA developers take our open source patch and build it into NVDA, and that would ultimately be the better solution. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed. Yeah, and, and let's ask them outright. Freedom Scientific, you should be doing it. Microsoft, you should be doing it. For crying out loud, Dragon, you should be doing it. Support for Eyes on Success is made possible in part by our corporate partners. Find out more about partnership opportunities by sending an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. This week's focus topic is the accessibility of digital products. So you mentioned that you were the web accessibility evangelist at Berkeley. What exactly does that mean? What is your role there? So my role is to take the official job description is to help foster an environment of digital accessibility, primarily on the web, but I also go so far as looking at all other kinds of digital accessibility. So for example, this morning I spent an hour and a half with some coworkers looking through a RFP request for purchase on photocopiers. (laughs) making sure we could get the most accessible photocopiers we could buy. Now, when you say accessible, you don't just mean for people with vision issues. You also mean people who need sticky keys and whatever else. Exactly. So, you know, one of the things we were looking for in that RFP, for example, was OCR for blind people. But we were also looking for, you know, is there a speech control module. So a person who is a quadriplegic, as long as they can get the paper onto the machine, could photocopy it, for example. I look at all aspects of the accessibility. So you have personal experience with the blindness access technology, but as you just said, you also check products for accessibility for other disability groups. How does that work? If you want to be a professional in accessibility, don't focus strictly on one disability group. Don't focus on 
making things accessible for your particular disability group. It is a very easy trap to fall into. So people will see a blind person who says they know about accessibility and they go, oh, you're really good with screen readers, but you know nothing about how a Dragon user works. That's not true. You don't know anything about how a person with a learning disability works. You need to make sure that that's not the person you are when you're going for employment as a person with a disability. You need to inform yourself and more importantly, surround yourself with other disability groups Go outside your comfort level and learn what everyone's needs are to be a professional in the field. You know, it's really great that people are thinking more about accessibility in general in their products, and particularly this concept of universal design that we design for everybody. And I often find that products that are designed well for me are often more pleasing to other users, even if they're cited, for example. And I could picture, you know, you talk about people who don't have complete mobility. Sometimes even if you're sighted, you may have your hands full with something else. And maybe accessing something with speech recognition is a little bit easier for that person. Exactly. I mean, let's let's look at Zoom. I mean, it was a product that was created accessibly. And why did it win the pandemic war? Because it actually works for everyone. It's an accessible product that actually works. They really have stepped up to the plate. In fact, we used to use Skype for many years for our interviews. And over the past year, we've migrated to Zoom. And it's a lot more turnkey and a lot easier to use, not only for us, but the people that we're interviewing. Yeah, I I absolutely agree. I mean, I still have a Skype account on my machine, but it's terrible. The amount of steps and loops and hoops you have to go through it is terrible. I mean, used to be you could open a open a conversation and figure out what the people were saying. You just you can't even do that anymore. You know, and when we talk about accessibility of some of these products, I think that developers like Zoom, in some sense, had an advantage. They started a lot later, after people were more concerned about accessibility, because they weren't years ago, quite frankly. And they don't have to deal with a lot of legacy code appealing to legacy users. If you think of Skype developed many years ago, it kept being built on. And the original structure just didn't have some of these concepts in mind. And it's tough to just throw out all your code by a developer and start from scratch again. Yes, I absolutely agree that they were starting out in a not accessible mindset. But Skype was actually, I'm not going to give this one to you, Peter. (laughs) Skype early on thought about accessibility. And I mean, Skype falls victim to the acquisition uh, product destruction trend is what we like to call it. As it got purchased by company after company, and they all wanted to put their own little fingerprint in it and make it their own, it became a product that was overbloated and underperforming. The original Skype product was actually a beautiful, accessible tool. It was working really, really well when it came out. And now it's not at all usable in some ways. If I was a person who was using a keyboard only, not thing to do with blindness or screen readers, it would be a terrible experience for me. So getting back to web accessibility, we've certainly come through a lot of changes on the web over the years. And often what I see is 
that new technologies are developed for displaying and working with content on the web, and often our access technologies have to play catch-up. So it seems like no matter how well our access technologies do, we're always a little bit behind. I wonder if you have any comment about that. It's interesting. There is a major, major gap between what the people who are innovating know about accessibility and what they need to know about accessibility. So these people who are out there creating and innovating literally throw things together in days that become products that are ideas that never have any thought of accessibility in in them from the start. You know, let's come up with a new way to chat. And then all of a sudden they've got, you know, little funny things happening on the screen and let's animate the chat and let's have it scroll. And they don't realize what the accessibility impact is, is because they don't even realize that accessibility is a thing. Yeah. They're designing mostly for looks. Exactly. You know, one of my big projects that I've been working on is encouraging companies to actually engage and hire people with disabilities to be on their product teams, not to be the testers, not to be the people who fix the accessibility, but just so they're there on the product team. You know, maybe, maybe the person in accounting is a screen reader user. Maybe the person over in purchasing and acquisition is deaf and hard of hearing. When you have a person that you know with a disability, you're more conscious of their disability when you're thinking of your ideas and innovation, especially if that person's a, somebody you're, you're friendly with. You're not going to make a product that, you know, your best buddy that you just had drinks with the night before can't use. Yeah, I agree with you. I believe that if developers are users of their own products or they have colleagues or friends who are users of their own products, they're bound to be better products. I mean, how many times do you see software and you think, boy, I can't believe the guy who developed this ever used it. Exactly. My boss calls it the aha moment. You know, we do these clinics at the campus where we take somebody's website and we literally put it through its accessibility paces and the developer we encourage them to be there when we do this and they sit there and they see me hit a roadblock it's really impactful for them you know it's now not no longer this regulation or requirement that they're sitting there you know somebody's telling them you must comply with w3c 2.0 yada da, yada da. it becomes a yada da, yada da, and that's it that's all they think is somebody is making me do this but then we've we've had this very friendly meeting and you know we've shared coffee and cake because we often have cake at the clinics and Now they see that I can't do the simplest task because of something they did. It becomes personal for them and they're, they're really motivated to actually make it work. They want to make it work because they want to please me, a person. They're not trying to comply or make a checklist fulfilled. Well, and I believe that's absolutely true. If you make people aware of the problems, they're often pretty willing to fix the problem because they don't even know that there could be such a problem like that. If I have a problem with a website, I'll always write to the webmaster and say, hey, look, this doesn't work for me. I'm blind. I use a screen reader. Here's specifically what's wrong. And here's how you might think of addressing that problem. 
and often they'll try to fix it. Not always. Yeah. You know, I, I can count on one hand over my entire lifetime, and it's a long lifetime, how many people said, I don't want to fix it. You know, they all try and do something, or they try and come up with at least a workaround. Right. I think once people understand what the problem is, they don't want to add to it. They want to help resolve it. Exactly. Now, in your role at Berkeley, you must be in a position of some power to have some influence over what happens and what changes are made. Is that right? No. No. <laughs> no. My role is a information-only service. So if people come to me, I'm more than able to give them resources and tools, but I have no ability to say to somebody, you've been bad. We specifically created a, a separation of the carrot and the stick is the way we refer to it. So I'm the carrot. I'm the one that helps people fix their problems, but we did not want them feeling that if they came to me and they did something wrong, the stick might be applied. Interesting. It's not very effective. <laughs> Let me tell you, I mean, I, I'm personally working to change that. Uh, trying to get a little bit more of a aggressive stick out there. The stick is missing currently and the university has recognized that they need a stick a little more. And as you know, we're building that position, but in academia, we move slower than stone. Hmm. So do you work with the students with disabilities? No, I work with faculty and staff, uh, primarily with staff. And my role is to support them to support the students. I had worked with students in the past. When I first started at the university, I was the access technology specialist. My role was to teach students about assistive technology and then help them find funding to buy their assistive technology. So I have the background knowing what students are using, but I no longer work with the students. I teach other people how to support those students. Well, you talked about the two approaches of the carrot and the stick, and I think it's certainly important to have the stick to make people aware of problems and help guide them to make changes. But, you know, the role of carrot, I think, is also important because some of these technologies and problems you see on the web or with products, they're not going to change overnight. So in the meantime, people have to deal with those issues. And the more information they have about how to deal with those issues, alternatives, and different ways of doing their tasks, the better off they are. Exactly. I mean, the, the, the reason we started with my role being the carrot side of it is that we wanted people who were willing to start to have a place to go. We wanted people to think of us as their friend and their partner. And the stick very often will be very prescriptive and very formulaic and say, you must do X and Y. And, and Peter, you know this, you can have a website that passes every single part of the W3C and still not be as successful as it should be. Yes. What are some of the major themes that you highlight when working with people to get them to make their products more accessible? Actually, you know, whenever we do our clinics, the first thing we focus on is keyboard navigation. And 
you know, as an aside, keyboard navigation is the number one thing. If anyone says, if I want to make my website accessible, what's the first thing I should do? And we always tell them, work on your keyboard navigation. Keyboard navigation will bring you 78 to 90% of the way through your accessibility journey. Because if it's keyboard navigable, well, then the screen reader can at least get to the parts of the page. There's a little bit more you have to do to make sure that the screen reader knows where they are. But if you've got your keyboard navigation, you've made it. You've made it so that a person, say, using a mouth stick can get through it. You've made it so a person using speech recognition can get through it. It's really the basis and the building bridge for accessibility. Great tip and easy to implement for web designers. Yeah, and it's something they can test on their own. On our website, for example, we have what we call the do-it-yourself checklist. It's currently just a spreadsheet, but it's, it's a multi-layered spreadsheet that a developer can look at. And the very first page on there is keyboard testing. And we tell them how to test with a keyboard. You know, the first step on it is always unplug your mouse. You know, and then we tell them, use these keystrokes to navigate through your website. We tell them exactly what to look for and how to score it. Sounds like a very useful resource. Yeah, it's, again, I'm really proud of the team I work with. We've done a lot of work for education and knowledge. Now we just need to get the people to the resource to, to look at it. And what topics do you find that people are most interested in? So the article that we have the most hits on for our website is how do you address hand pain, things you can do to get rid of hand pain as a computer user. For some reason, that one gets, you know, several thousand hits more than all of our other articles on our webpage. Well, because that is a very common problem. And I have had longstanding issues with it, so I really resonate with it. But I can't tell you how many of our coworkers who were scientists who spent most of their day on the computer also had hand pain. Yeah. So you've done an awful lot of different kinds of work at Berkeley. What of your initiatives do you feel has had the biggest impact? The two initiatives that, I guess there's only one initiative really, that's going to affect this and going to be have the biggest impact in the future is the Teach Access program. Have you heard of Teach Access at all? I do not know what that is. Can you share with our listeners and me what it's all about? Sure. So Teach Access is a consortium of major software developers across the industry. Uh, includes companies like Adobe, Apple, Microsoft, Google, big players, little players, you know, all of the above in the software industry that have, have joined together and have said, we are committed to the idea of accessibility in our future. And we recognize that the problem is, is that there are engineers without the skill set that are coming out of colleges and universities. And those colleges and universities need to start adding curriculum to these students' coursework about accessibility. So they've started creating the curriculum and offering it up for universities to start including in you know, software engineering programs, all of the above, so that the students who are graduating in the future and doing those jobs will know more about accessibility. And so they're, they won't have to be trained up and the, 
you know, that knowledge deficit that I've said was the biggest problem will hopefully go away. That will be a great step forward for the future. That would be terrific. So Lucy, this has been wonderful. Is there anything you'd like to add? The most important thing about accessibility is get to know people with disabilities, get people with disabilities working with you, pay them, pay people to help you engage them, be part of your company. Don't expect to get accessibility information for free. And, you know, working on accessibility is always making better products. The first thing you have to think about is making the product better. Once it's accessible, everybody likes it. I have never found an inaccessible product that people love using. The inaccessible products are the ones everybody hates to use, but they can find a way around it. Well, that certainly is good advice for developers. And hopefully everything will become more accessible in the future as people become more aware of these issues. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, success, success. Now for this week's final item, how to find the University of California at Berkeley's web access site, how to find Lucy Greco's writing, and how to contact her directly. So if people had questions for you or wanted to learn more about some of these issues, what resources would you direct them to? We've got a really good website. I'm very proud of the website we have at Berkeley that we've created for developers. The address is webaccess, one word, dot berkeley, B-E-R-K-E-L-E-Y dot E-D-U. I spelled that because people normally leave out an E. That website, what we've done is we looked at the different roles that people would take in a project and kind of came up with pages guiding each of them through their accessibility journey. So we thought about, you know, the project manager, what they had to consider. We thought about somebody who is purchasing, what they have to consider. The developer, um, we started creating, you know, a separate section in there on what content providers are going to be doing. You know, I'm really proud of that website. We get a lot of people using it. So if people had questions for you, is there some way they can get in touch with you? Definitely. I prefer that people contact me at my non-work address because, you know, then it can become a more personal relationship. And that is Lucy, L-U-C-Y, at access, A-C-C-E-S-S, aces, A-C-E-S, dot com. That's an email address I've had since the mid-90s. My husband came up with the clever why not take the word access and then remove an S and a C and make it ACES, access ACES. Cute. Do you have a social media presence? I do. I am access ACES on Twitter. I have a blog, accessaces.com. And I limit my social media to that. <laughs> Those are my favorite forms. And my blog is a huge mix up of advocacy type posts technology posts, and cooking videos. And on there, you can find a link to my YouTube channel for cooking videos. Which is? It's just Lucy Greco on YouTube. And if you're looking for any of that contact information, just go to the show notes associated with this episode at www.eyesonsuccess.net. 
That's it for show number 2035. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be talking about a book called Guiding Emily. Barbara Hinsky is a best-selling author whose tour of the Foundation for Blind Children inspired her most recent novel, Guiding Emily, about a woman named Emily who suddenly goes blind and has to learn to adapt. We talked with Barbara about the book, the extensive research she did for the book, and her plan for developing the concept into a series. And there's a fun story associated with that book, so I hope you'll join us for that episode. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy, and distributed by WXXI Reach Out Radio. You can access the full archive of previous shows, subscribe to the podcast, and much more by going to our website, www.eyesonsuccess.net. If you have questions about anything you've heard on the show or have suggestions for future shows, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. Thank you for listening and have a nice day.